All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. Uh, this is Dale Throneberry, CW2 helicopter pilot, in Vietnam in 1969, the 195th Assault Helicopter Company. Welcome to our program. We got a whole lot of things going on today. I've got a, a local veterans advocate on uh, very shortly, and then we've got our interview with Rebecca Grant, which I did on Thursday. And uh, so, she, as you know, she's our foreign affairs expert, military aircraft expert, and everything else along those lines. So let's get into the program right away. I want to make sure that people are understand that this portion of Veterans Radio is brought to you by the Legal Help for Veterans, uh, which is a disability claims law firm. So Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veterans disability claims. Give them a call, 800-693-4800. And the National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, uh, they are the nation's leading third-party authority for the certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. Uh, the Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information about them, go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. Also want to make sure that we thank our local veteran service organizations. They include the Irwin Prescott and American Legion Post 46 and the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310 both in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We could not get this program on the air 20 years ago, and we can't keep it on the air without the support of these different organizations. So we want to thank them all very much. I want to get into my interview right now with, uh, as I said, a local veteran advocate. He's an Air Force veteran. He was also in the Army National Guard. This guy is everywhere. Let's put it that way. So, Bob Bull, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks, Dale. I appreciate you calling. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to hear about what you've been doing. I mean, there are, there, we've been talking to different organizations across the country and, you know, just one and two man organizations someplace, but they're doing such wonderful things for veterans and their families. And I wanted to let our, especially our Southeast Michigan audience know all about your Veterans Resource Center. So could you tell us a little bit about what that's about and where it is? Well, sure. Um, it, it, it kind of started out as a, a way of uh, just providing a place for veterans to hang out. Uh, the VFW there didn't have any anybody holding the place open, and, and I had seen a, a, a vet center out in Bedford that was having, you know, people sign in and then just go over and sit on the corner and, and play with their iPod or whatever it might have been. And uh, I, I thought that was it was kind of interesting that they could get a drink or they could, and they didn't have to talk to anybody if they didn't want to. So we asked the VFW, and uh, we started there in uh, November of 2021, uh, just holding the place open a couple of days a week and and giving veterans an opportunity to have a donut, uh, get a cup of coffee, or later on a, a hot dog or a brat. But it worked into an opportunity for veterans to just dump. Um, I mean, like I said, some would just come in and, and have that cup of coffee and a donut and leave. But a lot of them would get involved in conversations. And I had very you know, rigid, uh, very, <laughs> very interesting conversations. Some of the guys would come in and tell their stories. 
Um, one of the generals had some great stories about Vietnam. And um, we just, you know, it, it just kind of blossomed from there. Um, the other thing that we we did was we started bringing in more resources. Uh, the, the veteran navigator, Erica Beam, would come out uh, once or twice a month, and she'd be there to talk to the veterans. And maybe once a, once in a while we'd have a, a, um, a, a VSO, a veteran service officer, come out. Um, I got my training uh, long before that uh, to to listen and to help veterans with uh, different kinds of problems. So uh, since I got my uh, my certification last year as a peer support specialist, I've been helping veterans with uh, things like, uh, uh, well, housing, food, clothing. Um, we talk about benefits, of course, and who to get them from, but um, different kinds of things, whether it was uh, – Somebody needed to talk to a, a social worker, and they didn't know who their social worker was. Or uh, somebody needed to talk to somebody about getting money for a funeral, and we found a, uh, a local motorcycle club that, that provides money to help with funeral costs. And those kinds of things that we've been able to dial into because we're there, and we've got a we've got a, a, a good nucleus of people that want to that care and want to help, um, along with VBA 310 and and with uh, American Legion 46 that that bring these people to us. And now the, the hospital actually calls us and sends people to us and, and the social workers and the, and the uh, uh, patient advocates. And, and this, this week we've been getting calls from, this, from the local community mental health um, just wanting to, to get a veteran uh, the kind of help that they need. And, and a lot of times the veteran can't get to that through the VA, so we have to find ways to get around it. Um, a lot of times uh, we're receiving calls at uh, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, um, because my phone is always on, to find out if there was something that we can do or somebody we could send them to. And I kind of call myself a switchboard operator, Dale. I think you are, Bob, yeah. and I'm sorry I'm going to have to make this a, a kind of a short interview, but it's the Veterans Resource Center, and, and where is that being held now? Oh, I'm sorry. It's uh, it's at Washington Community College now. We're in the IT building, which is the uh, industrial and technical building on the second floor, and um, it's because we, we couldn't uh, stay any longer with uh, the VFW that we, we went out and searched for another place to go. It, it gives us a lot more people, uh, a lot more opportunities to talk to people, to talk to veterans, because there's over 500 student veterans there. Plus, we're also on a bus route now, too, which we didn't have before. So that makes right. it more convenient for us. Yeah, well, this is uh, the Veterans Resource Center. His, Bob's number is 734-664-7878. I really encourage you to contact him because there's a lot of things that are going on with his, with the Veterans Resource Center. And um, Bob, I'm going to want to have you back on again later. I'm sorry to cut you short today, but be ready. And we're going to call back. You guys are doing great things. Thanks a lot, Dale. God bless you. Okay. Thank you. So right now we're going to go into our interview with Dr. Rebecca Grant. And uh, the one thing I have to preface it with is we talk a little bit about those um article uh, things that were le uh, leaked uh those papers that were leaked and uh we know that somebody was has been uh brought in for that so we're going to go to that interview with dr rebecca grant right now 
The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Warren Officer Frederick Ferguson led a four-ship helicopter formation into a South Vietnamese Army compound under heavy fire. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. After completing a hitch on the Navy, Ferguson got his commercial pilot's license and then joined the Army to fly helicopters. Two weeks after graduating from helicopter school, he was in Vietnam. On January 31, 1968, Ferguson heard that a 1st Cavalry helicopter had gone down in Huey and another had been badly shot up trying to rescue them. Ferguson and his crew agreed to go get them. While refueling, he asked three Huey gunships if they wanted to accompany him. They did. The GIs in the compound reported they were under heavy fire. Ferguson circled until the fire abated, then began a low-level high-speed run into the compound. He descended blindly in a dust storm from his rotors. When he touched down, he saw there was only one foot clearance on each side of his blades. The GIs jumped aboard and Ferguson pulled up. A mortar shell exploded under his aircraft, spinning it 180 degrees. One of the Hueys was shot down and the crew rescued. The other two were so badly shot up by the time they landed, they were no longer able to fly. Ferguson received his Medal of Honor from President Nixon on May 17, 1969. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome back to Veterans Radio. Uh, our guest, has, as announced earlier on, is Dr. Rebecca Grant. And Dr. Grant is a Fox News contributor. She's also founder of Iris Independent Research, which specializes in defense and aerospace research. She's also been a contributor to Veterans Radio for I don't know, forever it seems like. And so we're very grateful to have her back. So, Dr. Grant, welcome back. Dale, I'm so glad to be back and talking to Veterans Radio. We have so much going on in the world today, both military and diplomacy and lots to talk about. Well, I think then let's, let's just jump right into it. You, you uh, had mentioned earlier on that we should start talking about those leaks that went out there, which was just unbelievable. The leaked documents. We haven't seen a leak in the headlines like this really since almost 10 years ago when Edward Snowden, who worked for the National Security Agency, leaked a lot of information about global reconnaissance. But this one is just tells you what a different world we're living in. The documents were leaked on an online site it looks like most of them are authentic. I've noticed the Pentagon has been very careful in what they've said, but they basically are admitting that they appear to be 
real or very close to that. But then add on top of it, we've already seen someone, probably the Russians, changing and modifying the documents as well. So it is such a case that the Justice Department has opened a criminal inquiry and the Pentagon is still scrambling to call all the allies and tell them they're sorry for what they said and also to try to figure out who leaked these documents and what the damage will be. Well, for our audience, you know, there are probably a lot of people out there that are not that familiar with what some of these documents said. Could you kind of briefly give us a quick synopsis of them? Yes, most of the documents look like they are printed out charts, the type that you would give to your senior officials, maybe General Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they are kind of running updates from late February or March on the Ukraine war. So they, the pictures that we've seen all across the top is every kind of secret, top secret, no foreign or con, code word this, code word that marking that tells you these should not be distributed. And then it's a very colorful chart and, and tables uh, tabulating things like Ukrainian and Russian casualties, looking at ammunition expenditure rates, uh, some estimates about upcoming um, Ukraine offensive and conflict, particularly up in the east and the Donbass, where things are so hot and heavy right now. And then also uh, just some broader estimates about, uh, you know, the Ukraine air defense expenditure rate, just the kind of thing that would normally get changed out probably almost every day as the staff in the Pentagon or wherever updates the senior leaders. And then they kind of would probably go into a book and, the, you know, the general or the admiral would say, well, bring me the Ukraine book and I want to look this up. Mm-hmm. Of course, working at the Pentagon, it's all in a very secure, top secret environment. And that's why it turns out that, you know, possibly hundreds of people could have had access. And I know you're wondering, so how did these things get out onto the internet? Really interesting little fact here. We're told that these documents apparently were printed out on a printer, you know, your color laser printer, and then folded up and then individually photographed like you would do, uh, you know, like with your phone, if you're taking a picture of a form to send somewhere. And then that's how they got out on the Internet. So it tells you, I mean, wow, there's the Pentagon's got a problem. There's somebody in there that's able to get a hold of these documents and then someone who's disgruntled or motivated enough to put them out there. And I think once they got out there, then the Russians got involved and started making some changes, trying to show they were doing better than they were. And kind of it all adds up to a big Russian disinformation campaign. The other piece of of it, of course, is some reports about a bunch of our allies like Egypt and South Korea and things that we were listening in on their deliberations. So uh, two really interesting areas to explore there. It sounds a little bit like a Daniel Ellsberg Pentagon Papers type of, of workshop going on there where, you, you know, you're taking the documents, making copies. and, and Some of it was exactly like the Daniel Ellsberg incidents from, you know, that were a leak of huge amounts of documents pertaining to the Vietnam War, right? And uh, some of it's very similar because, for instance, one of the documents looks at 
um, an intelligence estimate of what's going to happen in the east and the Donbass around Bakhmut, where the Ukrainians have pushed the Russians back, but there's still very intense fighting. And it says, hey, we think there might be a stalemate up here. That's gotten a lot of attention. But, you know, got to keep it in context because that's just one front in the Ukraine war. And we're really looking for Ukraine to make progress, not so much in the east, but down along the south by the Black Sea ports and then, of course, around Crimea. But, yeah, it's really it's really Ellsberg like. And the, um, you know, a difference, though, is that in the Ellsberg days, there was at least some discussion about do we hold these documents back right. this time? Yeah. They just went straight out on the internet. That's twenty twenty three. I know it's just everything is flashing here. You know, the, the, the all the president's men and all that stuff is you know how primitive everything was at the time. And uh, oh, those old guys would all have a field day today. Um, some of the things that that were in there that that uh, in, in addition to the military side of it were some sounded like. Maybe this is the Russian interference there, or these kind of, you know, insulting remarks about allies and so forth. Yes, and I'm going to tell you, I've worked with both classified and declassified documents over time. And I'll tell you, the stuff that stays classified forever is the insults to, about allies. That's the <laughs> stuff. If you know, if some president says, "Oh, I'm really mad at France," they'll keep that classified just forever. You, even right. stuff from the 1950s. So in this case, there were there were a couple big ones. Uh, one was with South Korea, where you know South Korea is uh, has some policies where they try to stay out of conflicts, but they have been talking about giving ammunition to Ukraine because, you know, there are 54 countries that are supporting Ukraine. So this was a bit embarrassing. <clears throat> the other one, of course, was Egypt. And that was, you know, front page news. Allegedly, Egypt was thinking about producing um, battlefield rockets to sell to Russia. Now, Egypt has flat out denied that this is taking place. And interesting to note that none of our allies are upset. I mean, this hasn't really made a dent. So whatever political, military, uh, diplomatic discussions we had with Egypt, and we know that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin made a lot of phone calls. So nothing is going to change in our relationship with Egypt. They deny it. And you, you got to think about it. You know, how could Egypt possibly produce 40,000 battlefield rockets and ship them to Ukraine with that? us noticing. So it is a little bit hard to credit. And that's where I think, you know, we see some Russian uh, possible interference, obviously just speculating, but Russia would be motivated to try to embarrass the United States. And then, again, pulling back overall, what's the issue here is I think Russia really wants to undermine American domestic support, our public opinion support for Ukraine. It's been a year. We've all got a lot of questions about what's going on, and they want to try to undermine that support. Russia has basically lost the information war. Zelensky is popular. Ukraine is doing well. Everybody knows Putin's a menace. So I think in a way this is a very heavy-handed effort to try to weaken American support for Ukraine, just as Russia's own offensive has not accomplished anything. And just as we expect to see Ukraine try to make a move and change the dynamics on the ground. Well, I think that kind of gives us a nice transition into what exactly do you see is going on in Ukraine this this year? 
this year. So the big question, all eyes on Ukraine's spring offensive. Now, obviously, we don't know when this is going to take place. We don't know what it's going to look like. But the Pentagon has been telling us for at least six months that Ukraine is um, setting the conditions getting ready to make a move. And, you know, your military audience, they understand what that means. You've got to, you've got to get things in place. A couple of big things have happened over the winter. The U.S. has trained 4,000 Ukrainians uh, alone. Britain has trained more. And, of course, everyone following this knows that there's been a lot of military assistance and equipment. I think they need more. They should have had air power or whatnot. And I don't I don't think anybody thinks that the U.S. response has been perfect in this in any way. But bottom line is Ukraine now has a lot of armaments, a lot more training. And now is the moment. Can they make a push, perhaps down in the south, perhaps even threatening uh, Russia's hold on Crimea? Can they make a push that will change the dynamics on the ground, take back more of Ukraine's own territory so that there can be a more stable settlement. Peace talks, you name it. Who knows what this is going to lead to? But right now, there are too many Russian soldiers in too much of Ukraine for there to be any kind of settlement that would hold. So this spring, this is going to be Ukraine's big chance to see if they can use the training, the equipment, the support, the financial support also that we've given them and try to uh, beat Russia back. You know, I, I, one of the things I really find really kind of very interesting about this whole thing over there, Dr. Grant, is, is, you know, we didn't really understand, I guess, how, how organized the uh, Ukrainian military was to begin with. I, I mean, I kind of thought, well, you know, it's kind of this ragtag group of, of, of soldiers out there, but it seems like they're very disciplined and, and, and quite capable. I mean, well, we know they're quite capable for sure. Well, they're highly motivated, of course. Yeah. But remember that NATO had done a fair amount of training, um, particularly on the air side. We've had our uh, fighter units from the Fresno California Air National Guard go and train with Ukraine. NATO had done a lot of command and control exercises with Ukraine. This dates back a few years. And then, of course, Ukraine has been fighting since the 2014 mm -hmm. invasion, right, which started with Crimea and then moved into this eastern region we call the Donbass. You know, those trench lines have been there a long time. So Ukraine had some battle experience. And then add to that, of course, the incredible motivation of so many Ukrainians, you know, families who took the family to Poland, left mom and the kids in Poland, kids going to school in Poland, mom got a job in Poland, the dad went back to fight. So they have turned out to be pretty effective. And we've helped a great deal, not only with training, but from the very beginning with the intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and cyber support that NATO opened up cyber support to Ukraine right away. And I think we've helped them enormously with that battlefield awareness, which is now so uh, instrumental in modern warfare that combined with their resolve and their determination has has made them pretty effective. And in contrast, you know, Russia 
wasn't what we thought. And then Russia's taken some quite significant losses, of course, in a number of their senior leaders have been taken out by Ukrainian snipers. And then they lost a lot of their crucial uh, battlefield leadership. You know, what for us would be the NCOs that weren't anything like our NCOs to start with. Mm-hmm. But the senior enlisted junior officers, they've lost a lot of those. And so it's just they've had to resort to this dig a trench keep the artillery going. And we've seen them hardly able to make any progress. It's really just been the the Wagner Group mercenaries that have have made progress. And in contrast to that, Ukraine has done a tremendous job. They well deserve our support just for what Mm -hmm. they've done. And, you know, as the British say, Ukraine deserves to be in NATO now, you know, fast track it today, just bring them in. I know that sounds a great idea. I mean, what what do you see as the, the world's kind of the world's response to what is going on in in Ukraine. I mean, Putin seems, well, in this day of misinformation, I mean, we don't know what what is true and what is not true, you know, about what's going on in the Kremlin itself. You know, it, people seem to be disappearing there as well. Um, and, you know, he doesn't seem to be in the best of health, but then you get China coming in and not really committing to supporting him, but indicating that maybe they will. China is absolutely making it possible for Putin to continue this war. Just just no question. As to the factions in the Kremlin, hey, I'm no Kremlinologist, but we are told that there are, you know, pro-war and anti-war factions. There are Russian elites who are would love to have access to their wealth in the West come back. <laughs> so there's no question that Putin has some domestic problems and a, a lot of, you know, he needs to keep his base happy. And a lot of his policy statements are are attuned to that. You notice he hasn't been doing as much of the nuclear saber rattling ever since Xi Jinping of China told him to knock it off back mm-hmm. in November. They have moved, uh, they've said they will move tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus. I see that almost as Putin kind of splitting the difference between wanting to continue to make threats and appear powerful um, to the Russians. I also think that their apprehension of the Wall Street Journal reporter from now two weeks ago, mm-hmm. when they took him the um, hostage there in Ekaterinburg, that's very much, again, playing to Russian public opinion saying, oh, we caught an American spy. Come on. This is a Wall Street Journal reporter who is he's a reporter. Okay, It's just he was credentialed by the Russians. And Mm -hmm. but that's playing to to where they are. As for the world overall, I think the the 54 nations that support Ukraine militarily, that's remained very solid. Obviously, Eastern Europe, where they live with this every day, very solid. Finland, Now, formally a NATO member, interesting, the leaked documents came out right about the time that or the the reports of them came out right about the time that Finland formally joined NATO. And I don't think that's a coincidence either. So the noose is really closing. Um, I think the question is, is we that we Americans who you know what, we don't really want to be involved in these wars. Right. Oh, my gosh. But we need to stick with our European allies. Anybody from Britain, any and further east, there is no question. This this cannot stand. Russia cannot be permitted to stay in Ukraine or do this again. Um, and we just have to make sure this happens. And not least because China is watching. And China, China sees Russia get away with this in Ukraine. Yep, they'll be right under Taiwan. And that will change the world as we know it. Right. Yes. And I guess we can do a little quick transition here over to over to China because they seem to like to have their jets get really close to other people's jets in the air. 
And um, so what I've heard from my, I have some, a number of students that are from South Korea and, and so forth, and they're very concerned about what is going on over there. And also a couple of uh, the uh, uh, Chinese students, which is really interesting, you know, that they don't want anything to do with Taiwan, but they're afraid that, that something is going to really escalate there. How do you feel about that? Well, Xi Jinping certainly wants us to think that Taiwan is at risk. Very interesting there. Uh, you saw just over the last couple of days when um, Taiwan's President Tsai was in the United States speaking in New York and then in California and meeting with uh, you know prominent members of Congress. And she did a great job, just fantastic. Mm-hmm. In response, China ran missile drills and released videos showing simulated attacks on Taiwan and flew, I think this time it was a package of 70 aircraft against Taiwan. So, you know, Xi Jinping is sending this signal of, hey, keep away. And remember, uh, Taiwan actually has an election coming up in January of 2024. President Tsai's term will end. So China is very interested in influencing Taiwanese public opinion in the run up to the election as well. Back on the military piece. Whoa, the things that we've seen with China getting too close, you know, they've done this for a long time. But the more they fly the big force packages against Taiwan, the more they're learning. As I always like to say, China has zero combat experience. Fortunately, let's keep it that way. But in doing the big joint exercises, this is them simulating wartime conditions. I mean, it's not the same, but they are learning they are improving. And there is no question um, that they are an incredible military menace in the strait and then down in the South China Seas. Also, China uh, doubling its nuclear arsenal. And of course, uh, being more aggressive in space. And then who can forget the balloons? Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yes. They, so the military is on the rise. And The world we live in now, Dale, is a Russia-China alliance. Mm -hmm. Even a few years ago, people said, oh, well, they don't really get along. The Russians and Chinese secretly hate each other. I think they probably do. But for now and for the foreseeable future, these two are tight allies. And that means that for democracy-loving nations, um, the battle is here. This is the world that we live in. This is a battle that is economic. It's about our way of life. It's about our values. But it's also very much about keeping our military ready to oppose that. And we're seeing some incredible diplomatic movement. Britain and Japan just formed a particular defense alliance. South Korea and Japan are getting past some deep scars Mm -hmm. from World War II and moving on because of the threat of China. Look at the Australia relationship now with Britain and America in building nuclear-powered submarines, not nuclear-armed, but nuclear-powered right. submarines for Australia. All across the Pacific, allies are, are coming together, and European allies, uh, with the little bit the exception of France, but many others are starting to understand that, you know what? Taiwan does matter to Europe because the China-Russia menace is real. Right, yeah, because when they when they find that they can get away with taking one, you know, tiny area, then they're going to move into a little bit bigger area the next time. 
Yes. And why, you know, why are we worried about this? Well, Taiwan makes so many of the vital, you know, semiconductors and chips Mm -hmm. in the world market. And we don't want China to control that. That if China took over Taiwan and stopped exports tomorrow, that would radically change our way of life just like that. Not to mention, of course, Taiwan is a, a democratic nation, 23 million people, and they deserve to be um, to remain the democratic nation. Yeah. You know that they are and, and, a, and a very strong economy. They're almost top 20 in the world economies. So that's a, a real and, and viable nation. And that this is just the sort of thing we have to do. You know, China uh, wants to rewrite the rule book. Russia mm-hmm. is, is a little bit becoming a vassal state of China, you know, and it's, um, you know, the Russian foreign minister, uh, uh, Lavrov, said back a couple of years ago, he said, you know, it's really not about Ukraine. It's about world order. <laughs> that that's really true, right? Yeah. And Putin and she have made it very clear that they are allies. Um, and so for Russia to keep their territory in Ukraine or for China to gain control of the Taiwan Strait would be would be simply devastating. And the fact that they're working together, you know, we really can't divide Pacific and Atlantic anymore like we've used to. They are presenting a menace that that really is global. And it's, you know, it's going to be, we're going to be in this for a long time. I have, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think so. We're talking here with Dr. Rebecca Grant uh, about, you know, world affairs, military affairs, what's going on around the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in what's been happening, as you mentioned, with China and Taiwan. When we talked earlier in the year and last year, we were talking about the Chinese kind of building these fake air, you know, fake islands and then claiming that they were, they were theirs out in the South China Sea. And for many of our, gener- you know, in my generation, you know, when, the, when that whole area comes into play again, we just, you know, we just keep shaking our heads going, you know, nobody's ever going to learn from these things. But are, are they still trying to, to, to control the South China Sea? Definitely. And these, these little fake islands now have, uh, you know, 8,000 foot runway, Petroleum storage, electronic warfare sites, radars, hangars, uh, everything you need to sustain and support military operations. And I'll tell you who's really taken notice of that is the Philippines. As you remember, close ally, and then we kind of parted ways, closed down Clark and all that. But now we have turned the corner yet again and are back to a strong alliance with the Philippines. And it's directly because of China's threats in the South China Sea. You know, China's gone so far as to say, oh, we want to be able to establish air superiority over Manila. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the Philippines, they noticed. okay, and so they've decided that they like the others need to come back into into the U.S.-led alliance there in the East. Um, and that just tells you what a threat China is. Of course, the other big, big, big player here is India. India uh, surpasses China in population. India likes to be on their own, you know, the big country, big economy, great culture. But India, too, really wants to contain China. So that's an increasing area of emphasis for our U.S. diplomacy. It's been going on for a while back through several different presidents, but we need to keep India uh, as, a, as an ally against China as well. Yeah. But yes, it's incredible to see this coming back. It's like a big game of risk 
Um, and let me just move to the Western Hemisphere for a moment because, you know, you may not have noticed it. I merely did. But China just made a big diplomatic pack with, wait for it, Honduras. <laughs> and that that's very close. That's getting closer, okay. yes. That's getting closer. Mm-hmm. I th- I th- well, how do you see... How do you see our reactions to all this this stuff going on there? I, I, you know, as far as you know, this current administration and, and what they're attempting to do, and the, the military is, you know, attempting to you know maintain their um, I don't know what the, the, their numbers, and they're having a hard time doing that. I mean, there are so many different things that are going on. Yes, and the military is very aware and in agreement. China's the pacing threat. The defense budgets are up. I think the the Biden administration's diplomatic approach, they didn't expect to come in and deal with all this. They wanted to do climate change and a lot of global mm-hmm. issues. And in the end, really, they're in the biggest game of great power politics that we've seen in decades. I think they're too soft on China. I think they've been too slow to um, to really understand how great the threat is. Back to the military for a moment, as you mentioned, um, the Army missed its recruiting targets last year by a lot, (laughs) like 25,000 people. And, you know, the Navy and Air Force made it, but just barely. Usually the Air Force is always okay or over, but they didn't, they weren't this year. Uh, The only force that is great is the Space Force, where they are still turning people away. Everybody wants to be in the Space Force. And of course, at 24,000 people, roughly, they're quite small. Um, But... The Army has to now make up that shortfall and continue on, and they're they're trying to do some things, including um, the Navy has raised the age that you can go in. You know, the, the Army is very aware of their recruiting problems. Some of it stems from COVID, where they weren't out at the high schools right. as much. And some of it is a big military record-keeping problem that you can just imagine how that affects it. But the overall issue is trying to appeal more to the youth of America and then trying to ease up on some things like um, weight, physical fitness, tattoos, things that, hey, come on in the Army and we'll we'll get you in shape. They're trying some of that as well. Um, But they have a big task ahead to make their recruiting goals for this year. Well, you know, and so many people have have retired and, you know, we had a 20-year war uh, you know, not too many people are going to be overly anxious to get involved in something like that again. Uh, I, I think that came into play in, in at least a little bit. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at my campus itself and, you know, the recruiters, I haven't seen a recruiter there in three years. Maybe they were always in the student center, it seemed like, Um but not exactly. And that's multiply that. And it's had a big impact. And a lot of that is directly COVID related, but it's going to be at least a couple of years till they can recover. Mm-hmm. I think people have to understand, you know, that that call to serve has to be there. We certainly need, you know, more than ever, we need our, our best kids coming out of high school and college to serve and to defend our country in all the different ways that that means now, whether it's cyberspace, whether it's a deployment in the Pacific, but we have real threats out there, real threats to America. And I hope, I hope that a lot of these young people will start to see that and, um, and serve as, as you did. I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's not really, it's not a bad gig. That's for sure. I mean, you, you learn, <laughs> you, you learn an awful lot about yourself and the benefits aren't so bad. I mean, if, if you can survive the tour, everything, you know, everything works out in the end. But 
uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many things that are going on in the world as I'm, you know, kind of going back to that misinformation thing that I mentioned earlier on is, you know, this current generation is, is, um, they're not focused on, you know, on, on worldly events. And then, and, and not that we were either or any of us were, you know, at 19, 20 years old, but at least we seem to be a little bit more aware of what was going on in the world. And I think that that's something that maybe we need to, as the adults, um, promote it a little bit more, you know, not just the, you know, promote the, the, the patriotism idea and the, and you know, the, you've got to, you know, for everything that we've got that is so wonderful, we need to, you know, we need to fight to keep it because there are, as you just pointed out earlier, there are people out there that don't necessarily want us to have these things anymore. They don't want us to have our type of lifestyle and, and, and so forth. And I see, I see some major, you know, big changes coming. Uh, I don't know where they're going to be. And, and, but I, I just, I think that there's going to be a lot of changing in the world. There's so much diversity, um, not diversity. Um, that's not the word I'm, I'm looking for there. Divisions right now going on in our country that we have to figure out. Somebody's got to figure out how they can pull everybody together again. Oh, I agree. And it's been 30 years since the Cold War. We had, of course, the the, the wars, the counterterrorism wars, but, but we thought that the global politics were pretty, pretty smooth. Now we are facing a threat in, in the shape of China. You know, one thing about Russia during the Cold War is they didn't have any money. Right. <laughs> they were... <laughs> They, they weren't the global economic force that China is. And now with the pair of them allied, um, you know, it's just, it's just true. The battle is here. I mean, it, this this battle for what the the globe will look like and what our American way of life will look like. It's it's here. And it's, it's going to take some time to get this back on track. And I think there's so much about us that brings us together as Americans. And it's time for us to remember that and look to defend what we have, which is the greatest country on the face of the earth. Absolutely. I agree. You know, let's talk a little bit about some military hardware. I know that's one of your passions. What is, uh, what's going on in the aerospace world? Always. Well, let's start with the space piece of the aerospace world. The space has really become that extra dimension of warfare. And, you know, maybe some of your listeners will say, Hey, that's been true for quite a while. But where we are now is a need to defend what we have up on orbit and to be more aware and able to watch what Russia or China or somebody else is doing. You know, the threats to our satellites range from other satellites bumping them, like bumper cars at the fair, to ground-based lasers that can interfere, to, of course, the, the space junk and debris and all sorts of uh, nonsense and menacing that goes on that affects the sensors or the the delicate optics um, and positioning of those satellites. Our economy is very dependent on it. Our military is very dependent on it. And the military does exercise uh, day without space and the ability to carry on operations. But an exciting thing happening here in the U.S. is sort of just a complete rebuilding of our on-orbit architecture using a number of smaller satellites in a network configuration that can not only move data around, but also give us backups for our sensors. So, you know, we have 
a sensor called um, Sivers that is an infrared sensor that looks for bad guy missile launches. And it's mm -hmm. very integral to our nuclear deterrence. There are plans underway to replace that constellation over time with a more networked um, array of smaller satellites. Another big thing going on, of course, is our is is we're building out a new nuclear deterrence. The B twenty one stealth bomber uh, was unveiled back in December. We'll be building sounds like five or six of those a year, maybe more. They will replace the B twos in our nuclear deterrent triad. The Navy is uh, very committed to their Columbia class, which is their replacement nuclear submarine. And this will be nuclear powered, but also carrying the nuclear submarine launch ballistic missiles that form that leg of the triad. And then our, our venerable old Minuteman ICBMs that are in the silos in the ground out in the West, they too are going to be replaced with a system called Sentinel which is a new um, ICBM and Northrop Grumman is the contractor for that. They ended up being the sole bidder actually. And Minuteman is just at the point that, you know, it, it is just so old. The wiring is so old. The fuel is old. The, the, the skin of the missiles is old that it, you, even if you modified and upgraded everything, put it through the body shop, you wouldn't have anything. So they've got to build a new system. So that means we're basically rebuilding all the nuclear deterrent triad. It's funny, the arms control experts just, we, you know, just shake our heads at this point because uh, Russia just leaves a new treaty every day, it seems. China <laughs> won't even talk about arms control. Oh, you can imagine. That's just not their thing. So here we are needing, you know, not wanting this necessarily, but needing to have even at the smaller arsenal levels that we have, fortunately, we have to refresh all of that. And then, you know, add to that, the uh, the Navy is undergoing major recapitalization. And there's some exciting things going on in the Air Force with a plan to have new fighters that are built to work with uh, drones as their wingmen. <laughs> Science fiction. <It's, laughs> this stuff is just, a, just amazing. I mean, the Army's getting, you know, getting ready to get rid of their Apache, this generation of helicopters, and, and, and moving more the vertical lift type of aircraft that, you know, in my own mind, you know, I'm still flying around in, in a Huey or an OH-13, something like that. Um, but it does have, I mean, obviously it has to evolve. I mean, we, we can, I think you can take what you've been saying about upgrading everything else along with the, the whole idea of infrastructure. We've kind of sat back and, you know, didn't pay attention to, you know, some of these things are wearing out, you know, like our roads and bridges and so forth. And we have to, you know, all of these things that we have to take care of. And then we, of course, you run into the political problem of how you're going to pay for all these things. Yes, that's right. And, you know, the defense budget is as big as it's been in quite a long time. There is actually strong bipartisan support for that. At this point, uh, one good outcome of Ukraine has been that both the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, particularly in the Senate, where, of course, the Democrats uh, still have the majority. Uh, some of your your um, more senior Democratic senators have been huge advocates of of rebuilding defense. And it's been a nice element of bipartisanship. And it, it, that's rare in Washington these days, but oh, yeah. they've been very strong on that. The Republican House, of course, is is determined 
to come to grips with the China threat. And you see that in the younger leadership that is coming up in the Republican House. But they also have bipartisan support there, not with everyone, but enough to really get that done. Of course, the the big problem, though, is the the debt is as high as it's been since almost really since World War II. You know, the debt to gross domestic product ratio is really out of whack. Um, and that that over time is, you know, potentially a problem, because remember, this time we are in an economic competition in the Cold War. Our U.S. economy led everything. Europe worked itself up, started the common market and became very powerful. But, you know, now our, our competition with China is very much about economy and productivity. And so we I think all your listeners will agree we need to have less government, right? <laughs> we mm-hmm. need to, to have lessen the burdens of government and the financial burdens there too. So there are some some very big things that, that do become national security issues at some point. You know, your national security does start with a strong um, American economy and with our alliances. And we have to get that balance right. Yet at a time when it is very hard to see with these rising military threats, where do you where do you take this out? Where do you shave this? It's it's very very tough set of decisions. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to do that. It's like trying to you know it's like trying to balance your own budget at home. You know what, what am I going to give up to make sure that we have this stability over here versus over there type of thing? Um, one last one last question. We'll, we'll kind of wrap this up, Doctor Grant. Is we haven't talked about our favorite friend there in North Korea. Ah, our friend in North Korea. You know what? What you know? He's been doing. Oh, dear old, uh, dear old uh, Kim Jong Un. Kim has a daughter who is about ten, eleven years old. You know, you're never real sure when anybody's birthday is over there. And he has been taking her out to see, you know, the military exercise, the missile launch, you name it. So, you know, so unfortunate if you look back five years now to the the summits in 2018, where it looked for a moment like Kim might be enticed to join the Western world and uh, open arms with South Korea and do some denuclearization. And then he actually stopped his testing for a while. But, oh, I think we couldn't be in a more difficult position today. It was worth the try by President Mm -hmm. Trump to try to entice Kim into being a real estate developer. But where we are today is that last year, North Korea did, um, I believe, a total of 74 missile launches. This is the most they've ever done in a single year. A lot of them still are short range, not a particular concern. But within that, there were about eight to 10 missile tests that show him working on an intercontinental range missile. He would love to be able to threaten Guam, Hawaii, the U.S. Mm -hmm. He's not there yet. It's very hard to integrate a nuclear warhead onto a missile and he hasn't done a set of crucial tests that show he has this capability. But what we do see is Kim Jong-un actually trying to follow suit and develop a triad, develop submarine-launched weapons, um, develop more of the missile-launched weapons. And it is it is really, um, <clears throat> really a shame to see. And it means even more important that our forces in Korea are ready to fight tonight as they say. And I think we also see that China at this point likes having Kim Jong-un to provoke South Korea, <laughs> the U.S., Japan, uh, and just to needle everyone in that region. I was just going to say, he's the guy with the stick. You know, he just kind of keeps poking you with it, you know, and make, make sure that you're aware that he's still there. 
just in case he's decided that nuclear weapons are the key to regime survival, you know, and, you know, maybe we'll have an opportunity at some time to get back to diplomacy. But this uh, Biden administration has made no progress on the diplomatic front. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I I, uh, think we'll end it up right there. I want to thank you so very much for being on our program, Dr. Grant. Um, I did want to let you know that we're coming up on our thousandth program. It's hard to believe, right? Um, in July. So I'm hoping that we can have you back then just as a, as one of our favorite guests of all time, uh, on our program. We, we, you know, we depend upon your knowledge and your expertise to keep us sane and, you know, not let our, you know, <laughs> let us go crazy with, our, you know, things that go on in the world. That you, oh, you know. <laughs> congratulations. Coming up to a thousand. That's a real achievement. And I would be honored to join you on that thousandth program in July. All right. I will let you know. That's also our 20th year, by the way, too. Terrific. <laughs> I know. Isn't it nice? But you age so much less than we have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Rebecca Grant, our military expert here on Veterans Radio. You can also hear her on Fox News and uh, everywhere else out in the world when they're looking for people who know what's going on in the world. Thank you very much, Dr. Grant. Thank you, Dale. Okay, that was Dr. Rebecca Grant, and I hope you uh, appreciate that. She's one of our favorite guests of all time. We're going to go out early today because I want you to hear a song by an artist named David Bray, and it is his version of the um, God Bless America. And so that's what we're going to do. So come on back next week. I think you're going to enjoy this song. Until then, uh, this is Dale Thornberry for all of us here at Veterans Radio, and you are dismissed. God.